0: This podcast was assembled on Friday, February 21st at 5.02 p.m. Eastern Standard Time.
1: There's so much symbolism around this decision, and that's the business we're in in politics, of course.
0: protest galvanized political action in Ottawa
2: and in provincial capitals this week. Disagreement over a natural gas pipeline in northern BC is again disrupting trade and travel in this country. A key rail line in southern Ontario is still blocked by people showing solidarity for opponents of the coastal GasLink pipeline.
1: These radical activists have erected these blockades because they want to shut down our resource centre.
3: Every attempt at dialogue
1: has been made
3: but discussions have not been productive. We are waiting for Indigenous leadership to show that it also understands. The onus is on them. We will be there to discuss, but the barricades must come down.
0: Although the Wet'suwet'en crisis involves questions over title and jurisdiction, it is also about a resource project and the environment.
1: The only way to get Canada to stop for a second
4: and to say, hey, what are we doing, is to stop their money.
0: Last fall, Justin Trudeau pledged that if re-elected, his government would work towards making Canada carbon-neutral by mid-century.
3: The climate crisis is real but we can't waste any more time.
5: Our promise is this. A re-elected government will commit to reaching net zero for Canada's greenhouse gas emissions by 2050.
0: With a promise to legislate five-year targets but no clear plan to get there, the Liberal government is now facing criticism for contemplating the approval of a massive new oil sands project resources frontier mine would add more emissions to the atmosphere and that's got many people shaking their heads
1: there's massive concerns about the in the increase of greenhouse gas emissions there are serious concerns around the impact on the environment but i don't see how it's possible to move ahead with that project it's not
0: just the ndp saying this many liberal mps feel the same way
1: if we are truly committed to Net zero by 2050 into the science, into the world, and our future, and tackling climate change, there is no explanation that exists sitting here today as to how this project fits within that commitment. So, should it proceed as it stands? I think it's a pretty easy no.
0: The Liberals got a rude awakening this month. The cost to taxpayers for twinning the Trans Mountain Pipeline have ballooned from a projected $7.4 billion to a whopping $12.6 billion. That's a 70% increase. Public support for the whole thing has now dropped to below 50%, according to the Angus Reid Institute. And conservative politicians are increasingly frustrated with the Liberals, believing the Feds just don't get Alberta and are fueling a national unity crisis. Tech Frontier
3: has been recommended in the public national interest because it will bring billions of dollars to our country, because it will provide tens of thousands of jobs in Alberta.
1: The situation in Western Canada right now is very, very real. There is, We're beyond frustration.
2: This is what I hear from people in my community. We need to be equal
0: or we will seek independence. I'm Althea Raj and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. Today on the show, a bit of unpacking and context around net zero, Canada's emission targets, and Tech's Frontier Mine project. University of Alberta economist Andrew Leach joins me. We'll also hear from MPs with very divergent viewpoints.
3: I'm Christina Michaud. I represent the writing of avignon lamitis Matan matapedia in the Eastern Quebec and for, for the Bloc Québécois.
2: And how can Canada achieve net zero emissions by 2050? Do
3: you even think this goal is possible? Honestly, I don't think it is possible because um, the government is pretty ambitious and it's okay to have ambitions, but he says one thing and then does another one. He buys pipeline and seems to go with projects like Tech Frontier that are bad for the environment so I don't think this is the way to go if you want to achieve the net zero emission. Um, yeah. And on Tech Frontier, what would it mean if the government says no to Tech Frontier? It would mean a, a strong message for the entire Canada but I don't know if he's going to do this and I hope he will say no but um, I think the government is thinking always like he's in a perpetual campaign and he doesn't want to deceive some people so he might say yes to the project even though the Bloc Québécois and uh, the NDP and uh, the population in general are against it because they know they want to live in a clean environment, they want to do the transition, they want to invest in clean energies and he might say yes
6: to that project so I don't think we're gonna get to the net zero anytime soon. Hi I'm Stephanie Cousy, I'm the Member of Parliament for Calgary-Mindipour and the Shadow Minister for Families, Children and Social Development. So if the government says no to Tech Frontier for citizens of Alberta, as well as citizens of Calgary, Mindipour, um it will be seen as a complete rejection of the natural resources sector and a continuation of the rejection of the will of Ottawa to work with Albertans. In fact, people from the prairies um, that they are listening and have the interests of of people from the prairies, Alberta and Calgary, um at heart. We saw this previously, of course, last session with legislation such as Bill C-69, uh, C-48, the carbon tax as well, um, but many people see this, many Albertans see this as the final indicator uh, of the government's refusal to listen to Alberta and to do anything from a true, meaningful, uh, certainly a legislative perspective to meet their needs and wishes.
5: Hi, I'm uh, Tim Wuppel, Member of Parliament for Edmonton Millwoods and also the uh, Shadow Minister for Treasury Board for the Conservative Party.
2: And Let's talk about the government's goals for net zero emissions by 2050. Do you think it's possible?
5: I don't think it's possible to do that through uh, taxing Canadians when they're using their carbon tax to uh, tax the average person going to work or the, the groceries that they buy, they, they're they adding a carbon tax on, on, onto, um, onto Canadians' lives, onto, onto things that they need um, to heat their homes that's not going to get them uh, to, to move the needle. What will move the needle is to invest in um, new technologies. Uh, move the needle is to have a better economy and then to use that prosperity to invest in other things. And also uh, to be able to um, say that, listen, we're, we're developing um, cleaner technology. our our, the the energy that uh, is coming out of alberta is cleaner than very much all over the world and let's export that let's get it to tidewater let's get it out and that'll help the overall uh, greenhouse gases uh, in the the country uh i'm sorry right across the world so what we really need to be doing is to be thinking globally thinking bigger and not just taxing uh, uh canadians
2: what would it mean if the government says no to tech frontier
5: I think for people in my riding and right all uh, all over alberta people would be even more frustrated more uh, very very disappointed i mean already with what the liberals have done to alberta with their bill c69 what's happened with the uh, tanker ban out east um, it has hurt the economy to the point where you know people are not only losing jobs but they're losing hope and on top of that to have a, a major project that can bring jobs to the area that would bring more opportunities to the area to, for the government to come in and say no after the, the company itself has gone through all the conditions that, uh, that, that they needed to go through, all the environmental regulations. Everything's been met and the government may say no for political reasons. That is going to be devastating.
0: Back in 2016, when the Prime Minister announced his government would be green-lighting the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, Justin Trudeau pointed to then-Alberta Premier Rachel Notley's climate plan as a reason to say yes. That plan phased out coal emissions by 2030, regulated electricity prices, invested in renewable sources, and set a 100 megatons a year cap on carbon emissions from the oil sands. It also included a carbon tax that would see Albertans pay more, for gasoline and home heating, but with rebates sent to low- and middle-income residents. It was to that plan again that Trudeau pointed to when the federal government decided to purchase the Trans Mountain Pipeline to solve an interprovincial dispute and help guarantee the project would get built. While part of that plan has been dismantled by the new United Conservative Government, there are few people who know more about Alberta's resource sector and Canada's emissions than the man who helped craft it.
6: Andrew
0: Leach. Hi, it's Althea.
4: Andrew Leach, uh, day job is associate professor at the School of Business at the University of Alberta and right now I'm actually on sabbatical working on a law degree.
0: I thought that before we started I would actually ask you to explain what net zero means because we hear about it often from countries pledging to be net zero and from developers saying they're making net zero homes and buildings and BP saying it's going to be net zero by 2050. What does net zero mean?
4: Sure. So net zero basically, as opposed to, to a straight zero or no emissions world, means that you might be doing things in your home, in your business, et cetera, that, that result in emissions. But you're also taking actions either elsewhere geographically or at another point in time that that reduce emissions from the atmosphere. So. For a business, that might involve buying carbon offsets that that equate to somebody planting trees somewhere else. It might equate to having a, a carbon capture and storage or carbon capture and, and utilization and storage site on at another location where they're injecting carbon dioxide into the ground. For some, it might be direct capture of carbon dioxide, so it's basically... Uh, an offset the the closest most people will see to it probably if you book a plane ticket and you can buy carbon offsets you can think of that as essentially giving you a carbon neutral flight as long as those carbon offsets are are not junk or valid are actually doing new things to reduce emissions globally
0: in the last election we heard Justin Trudeau pledge that Canada uh, well he would work to make Canada reach a net zero by 2050. what does that mean? <laughs>
4: Well, I guess the short answer is we don't know yet. We assume that what it means is that Canada will do, we saw in the election planting a lot of trees and changing our land use emissions, so two billion, billion trees. trees. Uh, and then we also presume it needs to mean more aggressive domestic policies to reduce emissions from those activities that, that create emissions. And then it probably means purchase of or transfer of some international credits. We've seen conversations around credit for LNG, but also credit for forestry projects or other development projects globally might be part of that equation as well.
0: Does that mean that it's not feasible to do this entirely domestically?
4: Most likely. It certainly means that it's more expensive to do it entirely domestically. If you think about there being a portfolio of things we could do globally that would reduce emissions, if you picked the cheapest portfolio of your global opportunities, it's going to be a cheaper set of options than if you just concentrate on those within Canada.
0: And just to be clear, the 2 billion trees will not get us there.
4: Uh, I've seen different math about the 2 billion trees. So it depends on how many of those are incremental to what would have otherwise happened. But the 2 billion trees alone shouldn't will likely not get us all the way there. No.
0: Could you give us a, a kind of a picture of the landscape of what, like, where do you Canada's emissions come from?
4: Uh, so I think everywhere and from everything is, is a good starting point. The, the largest emitting sectors are transportation and oil and gas, but we also have significant emissions from agriculture. We have significant emissions from our other manufacturing sectors, from our buildings and, and our houses. Uh, and, and then, of course, there are land use emissions, so those can be negative if forest cover is increasing, uh, but they can also be uh, positive emissions from things like uh, forest fires or changes in, in how we use the land.
0: We often blame the oil and gas sector. Is that fair?
4: The oil and gas sector is certainly now our, our largest or second largest sector, depending on what you you include in there, and it's, it's our fastest growing source of emissions. But even there, it's, it's not by any means the majority of our emissions and not the majority of our, our potential to reduce emissions. So I think we need to differentiate between our oil and gas producing sector and everything that produces emissions. So I'll, I'll highlight on our buildings and houses and our transportation combined those are going to be a larger share of our emissions than the oil and gas sector. Now they use fossil fuels uh, to generate those emissions but there's still everything we do on a day-to-day basis is is creating emissions.
0: There's a lot of misconceptions I think about um, how far the Canadian oil and gas sector has gone to um, become uh, environmentally friendly. That's definitely not the words I want to use but um can you explain like it, the emissions have increased the alberta government likes to tell us that um that every barrel is cleaner than it would otherwise be but is that accurate
4: uh, i think that certainly well i guess it depends on what you think otherwise would be would happen but certainly emissions per barrel are lower in the oil sands than they were at the outset of the industry Uh, They haven't been declining recently by as much as we would like, and in some cases they've been increasing. And there's also the fact that an oil sands barrel tends to be higher emissions in the global context. So if we compare just to ourselves, we're doing better than we once were, but compared to the global average, we're still almost entirely producing barrels that are above, above the global average in terms of their emissions per barrel. And that's, you know, use the word environmentally friendly. And I think we've to some degree made the mistake of equating that with only greenhouse gas emissions. And, and I think we need to remember that, you know, in our case, we have significant land and water footprints to produce greenhouse gases. And when you compare to other barrels globally, you're going to have different environmental impacts, whether it's methane emissions, water use, water pollution. Um, destruction of forests, et cetera. So it's not just uh, if if we're going to talk about the environment, it's not just a one-dimensional problem.
0: What should the government do, or what policies do you think that they are likely to enact in order to get to that twenty fifty?
4: I think I, I worry more about twenty thirty than twenty fifty. Uh, to be to to be perfectly frank, we we've had a you know we've, we've had this history in Canada of committing to targets that are two three four governments in the future and that makes it really difficult to set policy because the policies that the Trudeau government enacts during this mandate despite what the rhetoric will be from from some they're not going to determine whether or not we can meet that target and no one will be able to say this policy is not consistent with xyz in 2050 and whereas we can now you know we're within a tight enough timeline to the 2030 target that you can begin to really say those kinds of things there's no we'll do this during our next mandate if we want to meet the 2030 target so i think that's a much better focal point right now for for people and, and for politicians than having something that's uh, 30 years down the road
0: thirty are our paris targets right how close are we to achieving those
4: uh, we're plus or minus about 70 megatons, well, I guess plus about 70 megatons right now from meeting our targets. So we're uh, still a significant ways away. But I think this is the first time, if we, if we look at our Kyoto targets that were Prime Minister Kretschian's, forward to our Copenhagen targets that were initially agreed to by Prime Minister Harper, those were for this year, and, and now on to our Paris targets. I think this is the only time we've been sort of eight years out with a reasonable. Uh, path to potentially meeting them we need more stringent policies but they're still uh, they're still within the realm of possibility
0: what stringent policies do you think we should see
4: should see you know i'm a carbon pricing person that that shouldn't surprise anybody I think that's where we where we start but obviously the political landscape of carbon pricing is is pretty challenging so we're seeing some other policies that that do some of the heavy lifting. The coal phase-out policy in Alberta was really important and extending that across the country. And sticking to that is going to be challenging for the government. The clean fuel standard that they have in in development has, again, the potential to drive some pretty big emissions reductions. But really what you need, I think, if if you're going to get to that target, is more stringent policy to find the lowest cost emissions reductions across the economy. And that means policies that get at those sectors, buildings and houses, transport, uh, oil, small oil and gas that are distributed across the economy.
0: Can I ask you that in another way? Like,
4: Yeah, of course.
0: What does it mean for, like, I would think of my mother at home, like, what would she think that achieving 2030 means?
4: <laughs> I mean, the... W- without knowing your mother, um, I, can't, I can't really say. What I think it means for the broader population is that you're going to have to see one of two things. Either maintaining emissions being becoming more expensive, e- in, either in the sense that it's a direct price or that those options are harder to obtain. So it's harder to get a high-emitting vehicle, there just aren't as many of them available, uh, for example. Or... Um, that you're seeing more availability of low emissions options so that you know, we see if it's regulations, we see building codes change so that new houses are built to much higher standards, new cars that are available on the roads are just lower emitting vehicles, which we're already seeing, uh, and things that drive businesses again to bring those new technologies to the market, give them, a, make sure there's a market for them.
0: Can that change happen with the price that is currently set
4: Some of it you know I think that's that's maybe a a, a miss in our discussion is is people are, are pretending that carbon prices do nothing until we get to a particular point and then after that particular point you know magic dust comes flying and and, and all of the new technologies start to work and and that's not consistent with any of the evidence that, that we have what we know is that you know that every Cent, so to speak, of carbon price is going to make a difference, but the higher that price gets, the more cumulative change you're going to see. And so, you know, to push our economy another 70 megatons deeper, you're going to need to increase those, uh, those trade offs again, whether it's through prices or regulations. Uh, whether that, you know, does that mean some of the really high numbers that we've seen people? Talking about, I don't, I don't think so.
2: Now, a new report is arguing that the feds need to hike that carbon tax to two hundred and ten dollars per ton by twenty thirty, if this country wants any chance of meeting its Paris emissions targets.
4: You know, we have seen a lot of technological progress recently that have pulled those numbers down. That say, you know, you no longer need these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars per ton of carbon price to make new technologies viable to make this. Um, to make emissions reductions a, a good economic choice. So, you know, is it in the realm of double what we have today? Probably. Is it, you know, four times or 10 times what we have today? I would say no.
0: What does 70 megatons look like?
4: <laughs> what does 70 megatons look like? Um, what would it be? Not quite half, the, or a little better than half of our vehicle emissions, if I'm, at, like our personal vehicle emissions, if I'm doing the math right. Hold on, let me. since we're not live, I can pause and go and actually get an answer to that question. Yeah, Uh, so 70 megatons, just to to give context would be eliminating fossil fuels from all of our electricity sector, for example, Um, about a third of our total transportation emissions a little bit better than a third of our of our total transportation emissions. And you know, close to all of the emissions from all the buildings in Canada. So those are three different ways you could think about it. Buildings are 85 megatons. So if we took fossil fuels out of every building in Canada, so that was on par with um, Elizabeth May and the Green Party's election promise on buildings, that would be about the scale of the challenge. So it's not insignificant. Canada's total emissions are about 715, 716 megatons. Uh, So it's a significant chunk, 10%. But uh, when you frame it as, you know, what would I, be, what would I have to do to get there if I, if I aimed at one individual sector over the whole economy over 10 years, it's certainly within the realm of possibility.
0: I'm surprised you're saying that because it seems really ambitious to me.
4: I, I think it is ambitious to a degree, but remember the other side of the politics of this, right? That the Paris target is often painted as being a weak target or unambitious or what have you, right? So this is, in some ways, this is the challenge that the current government faces and that any government would face in this, in this same situation is that yes, to meet this target, you're going to need some pretty stringent policies. And then you're also gonna face a large share of the population that's gonna say, oh sure, but all you did was meet the weak Prime Minister Harper targets and that should have been easy for you. And I think the m- more we acknowledge that, you know, no, this actually is going to take real policy and it's going to take real effort, you create some political space to do the things that, that are going to be needed to get there.
2: You know, People think about the climate crisis as, you know, and for me, uh, it is terrifying. NDP MP Laurel Collins joins us later on the show. It's terrifying in terms of what it means for our planet, but also what it means for families and communities across country, the country who are already feeling the impacts of climate change. Uh, but it is also an opportunity and it is an opportunity to bring people into the low-carbon economy of the future that should actually be a reality right now and when you look at the numbers of jobs that could be created with the money that this government is going to borrow uh to spend on the trans mountain construction you know it is why are we not infusing $12.6 billion into uh, the low-carbon economy in Alberta and actually creating jobs right now, right there. Collins and Liberal MP Cody Blois
0: debate climate policy and the impact of approving or rejecting Tech Resources' new oil sands development, the Frontier Mine. But first, more with Andrew Leach from the University of Alberta. So we've done a lot to get where we are, but there's a lot more left to do. That's fair. Um, what does this mean for tech, for example? I mean, we're recording this and the cabinet hasn't made a decision yet.
4: Yeah. Uh, well, I think tech, in some ways, is pretty symbolic, The and and in both the good and the bad sense of that word, right? Tech is four megatons of emissions if it gets built, and so... Is it going to change materially Canada's likelihood of meeting its Paris targets? I would say no, right? It's plus or minus uh, 4 out of 70 out of our gap that we have to get. Does the policy to reduce our emissions by 76 megatons look that different than our policy to, to reduce it by 72? No, it doesn't. And then if you think that the world is on track to meet the Paris target it probably makes it less likely that a company like Tech is going to sanction a project like Frontier. So, in a world acting on climate change and a Canada acting on climate change, the likelihood that cabinet approval of Tech makes a material difference to our likelihood of meeting our Paris targets, I would say that's pretty small. Uh, but from a symbolic point of view, it's obviously taken on a life of its own, both in Ottawa and and in Alberta, and that may end up being. The more important part of the decision than the actual emissions impact.
0: What does a just transition mean?
4: Um, it, you know, I, I have to say the, the promises that people make either implicitly or explicitly under that heading often are really challenging for me. I think we need to acknowledge that, you know, and I'll use the oil sands as an example, but it's not really applied uh, exclusively there, Uh, The the idea that if you were to shut down the oil sands industry in a relatively short period of time, that the federal government or provincial governments combined would have the resources to make that transition painless for the 100,000 people that live and work in and around Fort McMurray and the oil sands region, uh, that's impossible and there is no level of government commitment that's going to do that there isn't a government program that's going to recreate an oil boom and and we've seen this across canada right there wasn't a government program that was going to insulate newfoundland from the impact of the cod fishery the the oil boom in some ways did it Um, my family's all from from northeastern new brunswick there there are government programs that are helping from the collapse of the forest industry in Northeastern New Brunswick, but you know there are only so many Phoenix pay centers and um, long gun registries and, and whatever else that, that you can put across the country. And they don't, they don't have the same impact on a community as a, as a core industry. So I think we need to be careful about the promises we make. That said, I think there are places where government spending can make a big difference. Retraining, uh, educational opportunities, particularly as we're seeing for, for young men in, in Alberta, giving people that opportunity is, is crucial. Uh, the other place where I think we saw it work in a, in a way, but not completely, was with a policy where you can directly pick out who the winners are, or who the, the people affected are. So the coal phase in Alberta was a very clear example. We knew which plants were going to close, when they were going to close, and who the affected workers were going to be. If you look at a decision like tech, for example, um, there's no sense in which you can pick out who would or would not be affected by Cabinet's decision on tech. Right? Even if you believe that the project was going to get built tomorrow, we have no way of identifying who the workers who might have worked in that project would have been and so it's very challenging for a government to say we're going to put in a transition program to improve the the lot of workers who we can identify.
0: Is it realistic to say or to think that most of the workers in the energy industry would be able to transition to green projects and I
4: don't I don't think that's necessarily the even the right way to think about it, right? Most of the workers in the energy industry are not necessarily skill specific to the energy industry right if you're an electrician working at an oil sands project it's by no means evident that your next best job would be in uh at a wind farm or a solar facility or what have you um and even if it were you know those those facilities are very different from an operating perspective right most of their costs are up front they're not uh, ongoing operating uh, maintenance and, and execution. And so they have different types of workers on different time horizons. So, you know, a solar facility might employ a lot of workers for six months during construction, but it's not going to have a big operating workforce. And so you're not able to, in the same way as, you know, I've, I've recently taught for the first time, I taught a second generation MBA student in our program in Fort McMurray. So a student who, whose father worked in the oil sands and who grew up in Fort McMurray, who went to university in Alberta and now works for an oil sands project. That type of multi-generational industry town, we're not seeing that in the same way with, uh, or at the same scale with some of the renewable technologies, which is part of what makes them cheaper. Right, they don't have that operating cost and operating workforce, so I would say don't focus on transitioned within energy. The uh, and you know I don't mean to endorse necessarily a a particular talking point, but for the most part, what allows workers to transition is going to be a broad availability of opportunities, not something that says I can pick you up and put you in another job in a similar sector. It's are there jobs for people with my skill set available? Is there something I can do without relocating my entire family across the country? Or if I'm willing to relocate my family across the country, is is that available? Are there supports that, that give me the, the liquidity to do that and to, to find that, that particular job?
0: I'm going to ask you a question, and it may be two questions. What does the future of the oil sands look like, and what should it look like?
4: Alberta, when we think about the Alberta economy of the last 10 years, it wasn't really an oil sands production economy or the last 15 years. It was an oil sands project construction economy. And that world is unlikely to return in a carbon-constrained world. So we're not going to have new oil sands projects, greenfield oil sands projects built every year, year upon year upon year. The existing oil sands projects, what... In some ways, is is um, advantageous for them, is that they produce a really low cost barrel of crude in global terms. the The capital costs, the upfront costs are already sunk, so they're producing oil at twenty, you know, in some cases less than twenty dollars a barrel. So, from an ongoing perspective, the industry has a very long lead time ahead of it. If you're thinking of back to 2006, or back to 2012 13, 14, where we were building project upon project upon project, that's unlikely to happen. So different industry, but still uh, industry that's that's long lived. What should it look like? I think we need to uh, open our eyes to the water and tailings and reclamation problem that's on the landscape in northern Alberta and, and think about it really quickly. Uh, we've got 1.4 trillion liters of tailings on the landscape in northern Alberta right now, and we have no viable, certified, long-term plan to clean that up.
0: Can we not just leave it there?
4: <laughs> My goodness, I hope not. Um, you know the 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 risk to our river systems, to our northern communities, etc. The the volume of water, the volume of tailings, etc. that's stored behind dike systems that are well above the height of the Athabasca River is, I think would be surprising to just about anybody. And so it requires, I mean, I'll use the tech plan as an example. Uh, They've got a hundred year, that's basically a hundred year project when you think about the ongoing reclamation and monitoring activities. And even there, their plan is still to leave on the landscape uh lakes that are in old mine pits that we're not sure at all whether that's ever going to be viable and that's after what i think most people agree is sort of an industry-leading reclamation plan so no i think the uh the answer can't be leave it and walk away the answer has to be where do we find the tens to hundreds of billions of dollars to clean up the liability we have now and avoid making it any larger.
0: Do you think the Alberta government needs to do more with regards to I mean we talked about the federal government but with regards to regulations and
4: you know my biggest concern for Alberta right now I think Alberta's regulations remain you know if you combine what's in place federally and what's in place provincially from a greenhouse gas perspective other than bc we've got the the highest effective carbon price in the country with the most coverage and so i think that's a good news story the the thing that concerns me most for alberta is that the narrative that this is a big industry problem and you know we saw it coming from doug ford which is not surprising uh, but we've also seen it coming from Jason Kenney, and I think if you, you know, if you look at where the emissions come from in in Canada, about fifty three percent, fifty three fifty four percent of the sort of emissions from what you'd think of as large emitters across the whole country are in Alberta. And so if we if we decide that this that our progress towards our target needs to be solved on the back of Large emitters, and not on the backs of, so to speak, not, not by looking at uh, buildings, houses, transportation, agriculture, etc., then you're really saying Alberta has to shoulder 50% of the national burden to meet the targets. If the mentality that we're pushing to the rest of Canada is we could solve this by a big industry regulation alone, that's a very dangerous thing for, for Alberta in the long term.
0: Leach, does it really matter what Canada does?
4: Of course it does. Uh, I think for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, we're, we are a significant global emitter. We're not on our own going to solve the problem, but we're a significant global emitter, one of the largest emitters per capita in the world and one of the largest emitters amongst the, uh, the, the large economies. And so what we do is material, even if it's not going to solve the problem on its own. Second piece is... You know, we're in a position to, through our own domestic policies, develop technology that can be applied globally. So, absolutely what we we do matters.
0: Andrew Leach, thank you so much. I really appreciate this.
4: Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.
0: Andrew Leach is an economist at the University of Alberta, where he is currently on leave working towards a law degree. In 2015, he chaired Alberta's climate change advisory panel. I reached him at his home in Edmonton.
4: Since the Liberals were first elected, over 100 billion in energy projects have been lost. Thousands of jobs are gone and national
5: unity is damaged. The failure to approve the tech mine would make this problem even worse. Will this government stop dividing the country and approve this science-based
4: project? Resource workers are desperately looking for jobs to support their families, but this government has no plan for their future. Look at the latest proposal in northern Alberta, the tech frontier mine. Even the CEO of the company says that it makes no economic sense. And it will make it impossible for Canada to meet its climate targets, especially with Jason Kenney's government in power. When will the Liberals look to the future and deliver a real plan for Canadian workers and their communities?
3: Each Alberta oil sands job creates 3.2 jobs in the rest of Canada. But the Liberals are holding hostage 10,000 much-needed jobs in Alberta after 200,000 losses there already under them. No wonder Alberta says this decision is a national unity issue. Right. So when will the Liberals That's right. approve Tech
4: Frontier? That's right. Canadians elected this government to protect the environment, to take climate action, to grow the economy and to advance reconciliation. They also expect this government to oversee fair and thorough environmental Environmental assessments. Right. This is a major project that is under active consideration by our government. Under the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act, a decision on this project must be made before the end of February. The government will consider a range of factors, including economic and environmental impacts, in making a decision. Here, here.
2: My name is Laurel Collins and I'm the Member of Parliament for Victoria. And I am the critic for the environment for the NDP. I sit on the Environment Committee and I'm also the Vice Chair for the caucus.
1: Hi, I'm Cody Blois. I'm the Member of Parliament for King's Hans in Nova Scotia. I am the Rural Caucus Chair for the Liberal Party, and I also serve as Chair of uh, Nova Scotia Liberal Caucus. I'm on the Agriculture Committee and the Public Accounts.
0: So I want to start off by asking you you know, we often hear about the Liberals talking about the environment and the economy going hand in hand. And um, this last election, uh, in many ways, the Liberals uh, appealed to NDP supporters by talking about environment and climate change a lot and promising that Canada would be net zero by 2050. When it comes to a project like tech, what does it mean for you about what the government should do? And maybe I'll start with Cody. Cody.
1: Uh, You made the point that we appealed to NDP voters. I think we just appealed to Canadians writ large. I mean, the evidence uh, suggests that Canadians uh, are overwhelmingly wanting us to move in the direction on climate change. Um, And and we certainly want to find that balance. If you look at the statistics, uh, Canadians have supported the price on pollution. They also overwhelmingly supported Trans Mountain as, as, as an investment that the government of Canada should make. And so I think Canadians... Uh, are largely pragmatic they want us to see to move in both directions as it relates to this decision you, you know i wrote my op-ed uh, because i wanted to get my positions out there we need to be mindful of regardless what way uh, cabinet makes this decision uh, that we have to reconcile the interests on both sides of the ledger so to speak uh, so if we do choose to move on the direction of a positive approval on tech frontier we have to be mindful that we use that decision as a way to be able to get Alberta and Saskatchewan to move in the direction of, of taking climate change seriously. Because we will not meet our Paris Climate Accord targets without a willing province in Western Canada. Uh, if we choose to go against tech frontier, we need to be mindful of the real powder keg situation that exists in Western Canada today. The fact that unemployment is, is, is high amongst those individuals um, that have traditionally worked in these sectors. And we need to have a plan of transition accordingly.
2: I think we hear a lot from the liberal government about climate leadership. We hear a lot of talk, uh, but it's really what I would like to see is more action. And the government's own environment commissioner has said that we are way off meeting our 2030 targets and definitely way off exceeding them as the government has now committed to doing. Uh, We're way off uh, from the forecasting that would allow us to meet our 2050 net zero. And, you know, uh, my colleague mentioned the support for Trans Mountain. Well, yesterday a poll came out saying actually Canadians don't support borrowing over $12 billion to complete the construction of the project. Uh, I think Canadians are worried about uh, the fiscal irresponsibility and the environmental impacts. A seven-fold increase in tanker traffic along the coast where my riding is, uh, people in British Columbia are very concerned. And when it comes to tech, this project is both economically irresponsible and environmentally the joint review panel was looking at numbers of the price of oil being 95 dollars a barrel or over potentially uh and that there's nowhere close and the neb agrees tech the tech ceo has stated as much shareholders anyone who's looking at the price of oil uh this Project doesn't make sense economically, but it also doesn't make sense environmentally. And the fact that the joint review panel didn't take into consideration how the project will or will not impact our climate commitments is very problematic.
1: I take your point that the analysis is based, the economic analysis is based on a $95 price of oil. Um, but assuming there's no public expenditure, and, and really we're focused on government's role as a regulatory authority to prove or disprove you know, the project, Where do you feel that it does not have economic benefit to the country? Uh,
2: You know, right now, the project has said, um, or the analysis is that it will create 10,000 jobs, that 7,000 of those uh, potentially are temporary construction uh, jobs. Construction jobs. Uh, And so, uh, when we're using as a foundation uh, the idea that the price of oil is going to be double or you know what other what most people are projecting that it will be those jobs are imaginary jobs and what I would like to see from this government is investments in clean energy in transit in retrofits for housing in affordable housing with energy efficient you know the kind of climate solutions that will actually help us meet our targets and of prioritizing the kind of good family sustaining jobs in every community I'm gonna interrupt you for a second here. If the government says yes to tech, what does that signal to you, Laurel? To me, it signals that they are in no way serious about their climate commitments. Uh, It signals that, uh, you know, we are already so far, far off from Meeting what the government says their ambition is, and so then to approve a project that the low estimates are uh, four million tons of carbon every single year. That is the equivalent of all of the light duty vehicles in British Columbia get getting taken off the road or put on. Yeah, eight hundred and fifty thousand cars. Yeah, it is. That's wild. Uh, you know, if we could make that kind of transition, uh, it would make. Uh, difference for our uh, to meeting our climate targets and so to approve a project that that is that that's a low estimate Uh, a lot of our stakeholders are saying it's actually closer to six million tons of co2 being put into the air when you actually take into account uh, all of the impacts of this project you know and to me it it also says that I'm this government isn't actually serious about helping Albertans who are struggling because if the government was serious about that, they would be focused on the kind of long-term sustainable jobs that will actually make a difference for the 16 to 19,000 workers in Alberta who lost their jobs just this past month.
1: First of all, you... Need... I think you need to understand our government has moved more than any other government in Canadian history in terms of trying to make sure that we have measures in place. Uh, We inherited an environmental record from the Conservative Party in 2015 that was frankly disastrous Uh, and and the the needle has been moving in the right direction. To your point, uh, we have a budget that's going to be coming up uh, in a couple weeks' time uh, that I am quite confident is going to have a lot of the measures uh, that Canadians expect to be able to move forward on this issue. Um, As it relates to, uh, you talk about tech frontier, if we choose to go, uh, we need to make sure that we are cognizant of that transition that you're talking about. But we need to understand our fiscal capacity to do so right now. Um, There is a global economy uh, that is perhaps uh, softening because of what we're seeing in Asia, particularly around coronavirus. In my home province of Nova Scotia, we export upwards of $500 million of lobster alone to China every year. That lobster's not moving right now. What is that going to have for the impact in our fiscal uh, room in this country to make those transitions? And it's going to come. We have 38 projects right now that are sitting that are approved. That would be 130 megatons, uh, which would exceed the cap that was negotiated on the Rachel Notley government um, uh, with Alberta. We need to be able to work with industry. We need to be able to work with the Western provinces to get them on board or we don't meet the targets no matter how much more effort we do and we should be all cognizant of that. Um, We also need to be mindful of the fact that the oil, sand, the energy sector in Western Canada has provided public benefit across this entire country, from St. John's to Vancouver Island. It has helped pay for health care. It has had paid for education. But that's where I'm coming from, is, is is there's so much symbolism around this decision. And that's the business we're in in politics, of course. Um, but I think that pragmatically, if we look at trying to advance the needle, the approval of this decision does not mean that we cannot be a government that continues to work in that direction.
0: Do you think they should approve it? I,
1: I, I If we do approve it, we need to be cognizant. I, my request, and I'm not at the cabinet table. I'm a backbench MP of the of the Liberal Party. No, a
0: first term, but do i surely you must have an opinion.
1: You, you read my opinion. I, I got to understand from my writing in King's uh The average person, and I, I bring you back to the point that Canadians want to see movement on environment and climate change. They support the price on pollution. They also support Trans Mountain, and, and I take your point about the, the costs and and the challenges that we're having to make that that happen. Um, but but you can't deny that.
0: But Cody Blois, part of politics is making decisions, and I understand that you are not sitting at the cabinet table. Sure. But if you were sitting at the cabinet table, at, what would you like the government to do?
1: At, at the cabinet table, if we choose to approve the project, I would like them to. And ensure- you would
0: argue for which side?
1: I would argue that uh, if I would I would pursue uh, the idea that we explore the opportunity with the provincial premiers with Tech Frontier to use this as a way to actually get the Alberta provinces and industry moving in the right direction. I mean, we talk about if the approved projects in Alberta that are currently approved would get built, and that is an if because energy companies are not necessarily investing in the projects that they have already been approved. I've read it in the CBC News yesterday. We would exceed 100, it would be 130 uh, megatons.
2: I'm, I'm really constantly disheartened hearing the liberals continue to talk about striking this balance, when actually, you know, the, the answer isn't tech frontier mine. The answer is investing in good, sustainable jobs for every community. And what I would love to see is more commitment and more action from this level government uh, In those areas?
1: I guess my position is that the energy industry in Western Canada is going to continue to play a role in our economy. The Conservatives would have you believe that that is the only way to create jobs in Alberta. We know that's not the case. We need to be able to continue to move forward. But I think we all need to be realistic that that transition will not happen in a year or two, and we are making that transition.
2: If, if you actually believe the words that you're saying, if you're serious about those words, why are we spending $12.6 billion on a... On the pipeline
1: 76% of Canadians wanted it. I mean, honestly, and, and there's a real challenge right now if we're going to officially... The vast
2: majority, so only, only 16% now are comfortable with spending that amount of money on a pipeline, on borrowing that well, money. Let,
1: I, I want to finish. No, I need to make a point on this, on the pipeline point. I think it. I, I really want to make the point that we're talking about rail safety, uh, and we're talking about the fact that without that pipeline, the fact is that rail is going to get shipped. Uh, oil is going to get shipped by rail. We've had derailments in Saskatchewan. We've had dera- it's the safest you are way to transport the product. Increasing
2: production, you are increasing uh, the amount of tanker traffic on the BC coast. You are increasing the risk of a devastating spill on our coastline. <laughs>
1: We're also increasing the risk, that can, the rail line going right through Canadian communities, uh, transporting a more. There's a market for it, and I think the reality is what we both need to recognize is that there is still a market for oil products in this in this country and in this, in this world, and it's going to continue to move in that direction. You
2: bought a pipeline. Now you're borrowing an additional 12.6 billion dollars to complete the construction, and which would be a public asset, honestly, which is ironic because is the NDP potentially is potentially a low estimate because. The delays, um, the rising costs seem to be going up and up and up. And you could have spent that money on the green economy. It is just mind boggling that in a climate crisis, that that is the choice that you made.
0: I appreciate your passion on both sides. <laughs> Laurel Collins, Cody Blois, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thanks for your time. Laurel Collins is the NDP MP for Victoria. Cody Blois is a Liberal MP for King's Hands. No Conservative MP was available to join us when we recorded this conversation on Thursday. That day, four Conservative MPs signed on to what's being called the Buffalo Declaration. Calgary MP Michelle Rempel-Gardner described it as a line in the sand. Status quo is no longer acceptable to the people we represent, the MPs wrote. Structural changes have to be made to ensure their region's prosperity doesn't depend on the whims of a political party in Ottawa. Here's more of what Rempel-Garner had to say in a video she posted to YouTube.
2: The people that I represent are not equal partners in Confederation. And until such a time that we can rectify that, we have a serious and enduring problem that is doomed to repeat itself. And that is not fair. It's not fair. There are many Albertans that are questioning if Confederation is broken beyond repair. There are many who feel disconnected from and disrespected by the Laurentian Power Consensus of Eastern Canada. And they're also frustrated that many Canadians are unaware or don't express compassion to the struggles that they are facing. What I've heard from my community is very clear. One way or another, one way or another, Alberta will have equality.
0: You can read the document at buffalodeclaration.com. Well, that's our show. If you enjoyed this episode on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us, please leave us a review. We love feedback. You can send us your thoughts and story ideas to me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Althea Raj is my handle. That's A-L-T-H-I-A-R-A-J. Follow-up is produced by myself and HuffPost reporter Zian Lum. Our technical producer is Mikhail Stein. Andre Lau is our executive producer. I'm Althea Raj. Thanks for listening.